Hello and welcome to Dr. Ken's Sermons and Studies. I'm Ken Broman, folks, and I'm glad you're here. Hope you find today's episode meaningful, spiritually challenging, and nourishing to feed your hunger. Jesus and his disciples are returning to Galilee from Jerusalem. And John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The thing is, he did not have to go through Samaria. He could have gone around Samaria. If I can have an imaginary map up here and you picture Israel on the map, Galilee is up here in the north around the Sea of Galilee. And Jerusalem is in the south and Judea, the region around Jerusalem, is in the south. Well, the region of Samaria is right in the middle. And uh, so in order to get to Jerusalem, John says Jesus had to travel from uh, in, through the region of Samaria to get to Galilee. It's kind of like saying, if you want to get from here to Wilmington, you have to go through the Bermuda Triangle of uh, Chapel Hill and Durham and Raleigh. But you don't have to. You can actually go south to Sanford and hang a left. But that's longer, and you'd have to have a good reason to do that. And that's exactly the point here. There was a longer way to get from Jerusalem to Galilee, but you'd have to have a good reason to take that longer route. And the good reason was that the people of Samaria in that region and the Jews in Judea and in Galilee, they didn't get along with each other. In fact, there was 700 years of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. That's a lot of bad blood. And it was not uncommon for Jews who did travel through Samaria to be treated pretty roughly on their trip through there. So what they would do is that they would go across the Jordan River, come down uh, and miss Samaria, then cross the Jordan River again and come into Judea and then to Jerusalem. But it was a longer route. But they would do that to avoid going through Samaria. So John says Jesus has to go through Samaria, but it's not a geographical requirement. Maybe it's this woman that Jesus is to meet. He and his disciples come to the village of Sychar, which is right next to the well that Jacob dug nearly 2,000 years before that time. It's noontime, and Jesus sits down to rest at the well while his disciples go into town to get some lunch. A woman comes with a water jug. Now, the scholars say that this is, uh, uh, there's a message in this that we don't often pick up because we don't understand the customs of the time. See, the women of the village would come to the well first thing in the morning. They would need water for the, the chores and the drinking and the cooking for the day. And so they would come first thing in the, wa- in the morning to get the water. If this woman is coming at noon, the likelihood is that she's doing that because the rest of the women in the village wanted nothing to do with her. And the reason may well be revealed in what Jesus says he knows about her. This woman 
has been married five times and is now living with a man she's not married to. That means she's been divorced five times. This is a small village. And if you're divorced five times in one, uh, in, in uh, one lifetime in a small village, you get a reputation. It was probably a good reason for it. It was possible for women to divorce husbands in that day, but very rare. It was likely the five husbands divorced her and probably because of immoral behavior. And so the women of the village would have shunned her. It was the way they enforced the moral rules and laws of the day to exclude you if you broke those laws. So this is a woman. Men did not talk to women in public in those days. In fact, many places in the Middle East, it still isn't done. This is a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other, and a Jew would never ask to drink from a cup a Samaritan had touched. And this is a Samaritan woman who comes to the well at noon because she isn't welcome there when the other women of the village are getting their water. So here's the question. If Jesus even knew how many times this woman had been married, don't you think he might have understood that this is not the kind of person most of us would be itching to include in our little band of Jesus followers? In fact, that's exactly what the disciples are thinking when they return to see Jesus talking with this woman. John says they were astonished to see it happening. In fact, they were so astonished, they couldn't even ask why. They were speechless. But what they're thinking is, Jesus, if you're out to build a strong church, why would you want her to be a part of it? And then she leaves and comes back with a crowd of Samaritans. As the disciples are trying to figure out what Jesus is doing, he says to them, you might say, It's springtime. It's going to be four months before there's a harvest. But as Jesus points to the crowd of Samaritans heading their way, I'd say the fields are ripe for harvest. Now, I don't believe that the disciples suddenly experienced an epiphany and they realized how wrong they had been and they realized how right Jesus was and they suddenly understood it and they reached out and they embraced those Samaritans heading their way in spite of the generations and generations of antipathy that had been between them. There's no evidence that Peter and James and John and the others suddenly lost that prejudice and included them. It's just not logical. It's not the way you build a successful organization. Ask any management consultant and you'll get the same message. If you're trying to organize a group of people into a a movement that will change the world, you don't begin by mixing people who don't like, accept, or trust each other. You don't try to break down barriers that have been set in stone for centuries by talking to a woman in public, a Samaritan woman, and at that, the woman with the loosest morals in town. 
And yet that's exactly how Jesus started his church. He called a motley group of fishermen, tax collectors, political radicals, and other losers, not a management consultant among them, not a PhD, not a motivational speaker in the bunch. And then he goes around bringing in all the wrong people, including a Samaritan woman who has to come to the well at noon. I'm just wondering whether any of us who said that we want to focus on evangelism over the next five to ten years had this kind of evangelism in mind. I wonder if our motivation for wanting to emphasize evangelism matches Jesus' motivation for doing evangelism. Because I'm afraid the answer might often be no. Instead of wanting to emphasize including others because we have the living water, they need to quench the spiritual dehydration that they're in. I wonder if we're thinking along the lines of a membership drive to increase our numbers. Because if we have more members, we will have more active volunteers. We'll have more people involved and more givers. And if we have more givers, we increase our income. And if we increase our income, we can pay our bills. In other words, instead of wanting to do evangelism for the sake of those who need to drink from Jesus' living water, I wonder if we want to do evangelism for First Presbyterian Church. There's no question. Jesus wants us to be engaged in evangelism. He says so right here when he talks to the disciples about the fields being ripe for the harvest and and it's time to harvest that for which you didn't sow or, or work. We need to do it. Presbyterians are notoriously terrible at evangelism. We need to do it. We need to do it better. But before we skip to the question of how we do evangelism, John's gospel would have us ask the first question, To whom do we do evangelism? We are not a club that needs to conduct a membership drive. We are not a business that needs to increase our customer base so we have more income. We are the body of Christ, the mission outpost of God's kingdom on the corner of North Main and Parkway in High Point, North Carolina. And our mission is to bring the living water of Jesus Christ to those who thirst for something more than the meaningless rat race of this culture that says happiness is out there somewhere if you just keep buying and indulging all of your appetites and desires. If we see ourselves as a club, that needs to conduct a membership drive or a business that needs to increase its customer base, I'm afraid we will then begin what I would call evangelistic profiling. We begin to pick out the right profile of person that we would have to uh, join our church, we would reach out to. 
We would figure out who would be the most desirable members of the club. We would begin to target the right group of customers who will be like us, who will get involved, who will be leaders and increase our income stream. I see Jesus doing none of that in this passage or anywhere else where Jesus brings people in to his fold. His desire isn't to grow a great and wonderful organization. His desire is not to grow a solid customer base who will keep the ministries solvent. His desire is to change the lives of those who most need their lives changed, to bring living water to those who are the most thirsty. I am in total agreement that we need to focus our energies on evangelism in the coming years. Jesus agrees too. It is what he has called us to do when he says to go out into the world making disciples of all nations. But before we start, I believe Jesus would call on us to examine our motives and be sure they agree with his. Otherwise, we might just miss the people he most wants us to reach out to. Indeed, the fields are ripe for harvest. But those fields may well be Samaritan fields. Are we willing to go to Samaria? Are we willing to sit down and talk to a Samaritan woman? A Samaritan woman who comes to the well at noon. Amen. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Dr. Ken's Sermons and Studies. My prayer is that this message has touched you, challenged you, and nourished you in your spiritual journey. If so, please share Dr. Ken's Sermons and Studies with your friends, and I pray God's blessings on you today.